0: Uh, we'll get started. Episode 16 of Utah in the Weeds. I'm excited. We have a, uh, a special guest, J.D. Loretzen. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Is it Loretzen. Loretson. loretzen Close enough. And you would think I would know that because you were on I Am Salt Lake Podcast, four hundred six, episode 406. I made sure to look that up uh, before we came so people can go listen, uh, where we found out your story kind of. How you became a lawyer and how you got involved in the cannabis industry, yep. and 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 are you staying extra busy now that there's patients like actual legal medical cannabis in Utah? Because when you came on, I am Salt Lake, that wasn't even intact in yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think my practice has been, has been steadily growing. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to patients, unless they have a real legal issue, you know, they've been arrested or they're facing some type of, you know, family law type of action, you know, DCFS and stuff. When it really comes to patient issues, I try to drive those people towards the patient advocacy groups and towards the medical providers. Cause I think those are the people that are really best equipped to help them with a the majority of their issues. But if they do have a legal issue, you know, for instance, if they've been arrested, you know, or, or, or if there's some sort of issue with DCFS or something, then I can assist them with those. But otherwise I really try to drive those people towards the groups that I think are, are, are better equipped to, to help them. And and I just wouldn't feel good personally, you know, charging someone, you know, my hourly rate to help them find a QMP, right. Or do something like that. That's just, that just would never be something that I would feel comfortable with. So unless they have a bona fide legal
2: referral fee though, I mean, it could be a good business idea.
1: Yeah. Well, sadly. Because we, right, you, know, you yeah. could advertise. Yep. Yep. Of course I can. You know what I mean? But, you know, but, but that's, that's what I try to do. You know, I really try to save myself for when they actually need real legal help. You know, and then obviously the focus on the, on the industry side of things, you know, given how, you know, small the the medical side is a lot more of my clients actually have been on the hemp side, but businesses is really picked up just in the last two weeks. I've gotten a few new clients and, and sadly, but I guess also, you know, advantageously in some ways to me and what I do, you know, litigation is becoming a part of a part of the, the cannabis world, you know, you know, you're starting to see more of it, you know, business disputes and things like that. And so I'm starting to get more and, and, and more of those things. Um, so do you
2: think that that will be a bigger part of your business? The even, uh, dispensaries or growers uh, fighting against each other or fighting against the state?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of fighting against the state, I think that, you know, obviously if, if, if they get in, you know, if they get in trouble with the state or they get a citation or something like that, yes, I can step in, you know, compliance issues and those things. I think most of the the people here that are licensed probably have their own legal counsel. Um, if not, you know, I'm more than happy to help those people. But yes, I think those are the types of disputes you're starting to see more and more of is operator versus operator. But you're also seeing now there are class action lawsuits that are being filed against hemp and CBD companies for false advertising and then there's stockholder disputes and, and all these different things that, that are, that are nor that are, that are regular in other industries or, or exist in other industries you're now seeing come into the, into the cannabis industry. So yes, I think not only is it going to be about, you know, patient access and those types of things, but you're also now seeing disputes amongst, you know, the different businesses, you know, not maybe so much here in Utah, cause we have such a small industry at this point and only. A handful of people that are actually putting product on shelves and dispensing and processing and all of that, I think their issues are probably more generated at the state, but those probably are going to require changes in the law as opposed to any sort of legal action. But yes, you are starting to see the, the issues of, you know, processor against, you know, against grower and especially in the hemp, in the hemp realm. Um, I'm seeing more and more of those kinds of lawsuits, especially because hemp where the genetics aren't quite as figured out, you know, in terms of the cultivars as they are on the THC side, you're really seeing some problems. Crops are going bad, crops are going, you know, they're Herman, they're go they're, you know, they're they're males. You're having all sorts of problems. And those are multi-million dollar lawsuits. And you're seeing those all across the country.
2: So we brought you on for a couple of reasons. I mean, all of this is going to be fascinating to to us, Chris and I, um, but our patients as well, right? Like uh, we've been seeing a lot of people, and we get the same types of questions over and over and over and so i'm glad you came on because we want to talk about a few of those specifically the biggest one we get the most common is a gun rights issue mm-hmm. I want to talk about gun rights and this new law we have mm-hmm. you get a medical card and i 'm a concealed carry I have a concealed carry permit what what do I do i 'm scared they're going to come take my gun away
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting because this, and this is one of the things that highlights the need for federal legalization, right? Because on the federal level, if I go to purchase a firearm from a licensed, you know, firearm dealer, I have to fill out the ATF form. I think it's 4473. And on that, you have to say, you know, you basically have to make an admission as to whether or not you're, you know, a user of illegal drugs. And if you, if you say no, you're committing fraud, right? If you are a medical cannabis user, right? You say no and get a gun, well, then you've committed form fraud, right? But if you say yes, they're not going to sell it to you. But oddly enough, if you're a private seller, you have no background check requirements. You do not have to be federally licensed. And so if I wanted to go buy a gun from a private firearms dealer, not a licensed one, then I could do that and be a medical cannabis Cannabis card carrier. I'm not aware of what the law says specifically in relation to a concealed carry permit. Like if I'm already a gun owner and then I go, you know, and I have my concealed carry permit and then I go and get my medical cannabis card, what does that mean for me? What I'm aware of is just your ability to own it or not own it. And I think because of the way federal law is, I would surmise that you probably can't, you're not supposed to have it. Now, when you look at Utah's medical cannabis law, they specifically wrote provisions in to, that prohibit law enforcement from spending any resources on trying to enforce gun laws, you know, federal or, or otherwise. And so here in the state, you know you know state law enforcement's not going to do anything to you, right? I mean, that's the law tells them that. But the feds could, but the chances of the feds coming in after you for for gun possession, you know you know in conjunction with cannabis, probably pretty low unless you know you get on their radar, you know somehow, but still, Cannabis and guns are not, you know, not, you know, not, you know, friendly when it comes to comes to federal law. So it's one of those things where Utah might not go after you, but, you know, you're still you're still illegal under federal law, sadly.
2: So essentially, if I go to a licensed gun owner or gun uh, sales, I'm going to have to either commit fraud, federal fraud. Yep. Right. Not state fraud. Yep. Because according to the state law, I'm, I'm totally fine. Not using something illegal, but that form is a federal form. Yep. Okay. So if they're licensed, I have to make that decision. I'm going to assume I know what everybody would do. Right. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. if I go to a private seller, there is no form and therefore I can buy it legally, completely legally, mm-hmm. really. Then you're saying that they also passed a law that the state cannot spend any resources against me when it comes to my guns. Now, is that just all guns in general, like any
0: gun owner or gun owner with cannabis?
1: Gun on with cannabis. It's it's specifically written into the medical cannabis act itself. Yep. And I believe it actually was a feature of even HB 3001 when it initially was, 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 you know, was enacted. Um, But if not, it definitely has been a part of, of some of the special sessions or that stuff. But I know it specifically just talks about it in relation to cannabis. And that's how the carve outs in most of the areas of the law work, right? They've built in exceptions for cannabis users you know, in certain circumstances and guns happen to be one of those. So yes, you know, if an ATF agent is investigating you, it's going to be a little diff potentially a little different result than if it were, you know, Salt Lake City PD or Unified or someone like that, right? Because they're not, they're, they've been directed specifically not to do anything about it, um, you know, under the law. So you at least have state protections, but you still have no protections under federal law. And like I said, that is one of many examples you can point to as to why federal legalization is is of paramount importance. That's why we need to deschedule it, remove it from the CSA, and find a way to regulate it. In my opinion, somewhere between alcohol and a wellness product. I want to
0: mention something on the federal level, yep. but we should have uh, mentioned a disclaimer at the beginning of, of the <laughs> oh, legalities <laughs> of this. <laughs> That's right. And, That's and, right. And this is how,
2: information. Yeah. This, yes. isn't this, isn't this even is
0: information. Because we have new rules come out. Your about lawyer education.
1: consult. Of course. Yes. I mean, you know, this, you know, this, none of this constitutes legal advice on my yeah. part. This is just my own personal views and opinions. You know, I would always, always, you know, counsel people to, to explore, you know, actual legal advice before you make any of these types of, of decisions. You know what I mean? But- uh, absolutely. I was going to
0: mention something on the federal thing. Technically a federal, I mean, federally they can come in at any time in, in, your cannabis card doesn't mean anything to them.
2: No, it's even my understanding in the state though, there is a law that, that they can't f- spend federal resources against people abiding by the state law.
1: Yes. And it's been, and I can't remember the exact name of it right now, but it's been in, it always gets in the budget like every year and they, they, they threaten to not have it be part of the budget this year, but it, I think it made it in there, yes. but that's exactly what it is. I can't remember the right. name of the mm-hmm. amendment or something, but yes, it basically gives a hands-off approach to state to state cannabis companies, however, even though that's been the case, you can talk to companies like Harborside. You can talk to some of the other people in California that have been that have been the target of the DOJ, even after that has been has been in place. So, you know, yes and no. Now, obviously, now we probably have you know, less focus on it. Um, but but you just, if you've been following the news, you just saw that William Barr, um, because he is not, he does not like cannabis, has gone after the industry and ordered a number of investigations um, and is facing some backlash for it. So it's just, it, to me, it, it just underscores the point of why the feds need to do something because you can't have these hodgepodge, this hodgepodge of all these different state laws with with kind of no federal uniformity over the, Over the top of it. And, and these companies, I mean, no banking still running around with a bunch of cash and it just, to me, the financial, you know, risks that some of these people are taking to be in the industry is something that I just think the fed should, should alleviate. And also too, I just think it would go a long way for patients and other consumers as well. You know, if you had some federal uniformity to act off of.
0: Sure. Hey, I believe that you're preaching to the choir. Right,
2: right,
1: right, right, right. Yeah, Call them
0: absolutely. up here. Yeah, we'll get feds. Right? So, <laughs> okay.
2: Another question we get a lot is what if I'm pulled over? Yep. Yeah. Right. I'm pulled over and there's going to be various scenarios in this case, right? I'm pulled over and they decide to test me. I'm mm-hmm. going to come up positive with mm-hmm. THC.
1: Mm-hmm. And w- what happens? So, you know, when it comes to the, the officers pulling you over, you know, you're under no obligation to speak to the cops. And when I say that, I mean, obviously you have to give them your license and registration, you know, you have to, you know, but you're under no obligation to answer their questions. I think a lot of people don't understand the protections that the fifth amendment provides to you and you should observe those. I mean, obviously if you want to tell the the law enforcement officer pulling you over, Hey, I've got cannabis in the car. I'm a medical cannabis user. Just so you know, that's your own decision. But I very often, you know, to me, it's, I'm going to observe the fifth amendment, right? It's, it exists for a reason. I'm going to observe it. So if I'm to be pulled over, you know, I, I roll my, I would roll my window down to a point where I can safely hand my license and my registration through to the officer. Um, the next question will be, why did you pull me over? Um, and once I get an answer to that, any other questions from law enforcement about what I've doing, been doing where I've been, where I'm going, any of those things, you know, I'm not, you know, and really a lot of this is, is modeled after, two cannabis lawyers out in California. If you've ever heard of them, they're called the pop brothers at law. Yeah. Uh, They do a podcast and they have, this is their script. And, but this is something I would tell people anyways. So once you, once you're, you know, once you know what you've been pulled over, you know, you refuse to answer any further questions at some point in the encounter. You need to ask whether you are being detained or whether you're free to leave, because if you're free to leave, it's a consensual encounter and you can drive away right at that point. If you're being detained, then you're not free to leave. Um, and at that point, if you are being detained, you invoke your fifth amendment, right? And then you have nothing more to say without legal counsel present. And even then your lawyer will probably tell you, we're not going to do an interview, right? However, if you're pulled over for say DUI, right? The officer comes up to the car, smells the cannabis, gets you out of the car. You do not have to consent to, um, you know. My personal view is that you do not have to consent to the the field sobriety test here. I believe that's a Fifth Amendment issue because it could potentially incriminate you. So I think you have the right to not do that. Whether that will have some other implications, you know, maybe, maybe not. But you do have to cons- you do have to consent to a chemical test by getting a driver's license in Utah. You impliedly consent to a chemical test. So if you if if the test comes back and it, it shows. Active THC in your system, not just metabolite.
0: Wait, how do we do that? Yeah, I was going to say, when do you take this chemical
2: right. test? Stop
1: that, stop right there. Exactly, right? And that's, does that, does this,
2: that test exist?
1: Is it good? That's another. You bring up a very good question because they are really, in my opinion, trying to fit a round peg in a square hole when it comes to cannabis impairment. They're trying to act as if it's like alcohol. You've seen some states that have a per se limit of a certain amount of nanograms that can be in your blood, right? right, right. Well, we all know that that's not the same, right? And cannabis affects people differently. And you can have people that... Can could could consume a large dose and still be safe to drive a vehicle. You could have some people that could consume as little as two and a half to five milligrams oh, yeah. and be. I mean,
2: let's be clear. Right? You come into my ER and you get a blood test on alcohol and it's it comes back high. Hey, you're you're toast. Pretty good that's chances, a real, right? <clears throat> that's a real test, and it's accurate.
1: Yep. And that's the problem that they're, I think that they're facing. I, I think there's no doubt about it. That is the biggest problem they're facing over DUI enforcement when it comes to cannabis. So the way the law is written currently, you can still get a DUI if it's intoxicating, right? But that leaves it up because there is no measurable amount. It gives a lot more discretion to an officer. And, you know, given my civil rights background and some of the criminal defense work that I do, you've seen a lot of things from cops, right? And so- this is where it becomes really a sub or very subjective question. And the way the law is written is obviously, yes, you can get a DUI if, if, if it's impairing you. However, if the chemical test comes back and shows just the metabolites, you know, 11 nor, you know, nor nine, you know, hydroxy, whatever, then then you're going to be fine. That's That was written into the law just this last session. So the DUI metabolite law, which was upheld by the Utah Supreme Court in 2017, now has an exception for medical cannabis patients that have just cannabis metabolites in their system if they have something else some other metabolites no protection and obviously any other active drug or alcohol you know would do it so if you just have cannabis metabolites in your system you should be safe from a DUI but I personally getting back to to the question about when law enforcement stops you I'm a proponent of making law enforcement do their job um, and not volunteering anything to them and you don't have that doesn't make you guilty That means you just know the constitution and you know your rights. And I think people would do well to observe those. However, if it does come up, you know, if, you know, if it does, you know, if if the conversation of cannabis does come up, you need to understand that, you know, always have your card with you. If you're if you're going to be carrying cannabis with you for some reason outside of your home, always make sure those two go together. Keep your cannabis in whatever packaging you get. You know, even if you have a vape cart, I would I would say make sure you have the box that it came in that's got the label on it. Right, you've got to be able to show. Now,
2: why is that versus a versus a uh, a locked container? Right, if it's in the backseat of your car and it's in a little case with a little lock, I mean, mm-hmm. you see here, right? We have these little luggage locks uh, for people and. Why is that why is that different? They, they is,
0: probably want to be able to connect them right with the with the barcodes and all because of that. because right
2: that, now the supply is so short that really people are getting it from wherever they can and they're bringing it in. And once they have it in here, uh, you know, is it legal to possess and use cannabis here, regardless of where I got it from?
1: <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's federally illegal to go to Wendover. Or to go to Dinosaur or go to Mesquite and bring it back across state lines. However, under the state law as at present until the end of this year, you can possess cannabis regardless of where you got it. Now, obviously, if law enforcement catches you in the middle of a drug deal, not going to be the same thing as if they if they jam you up and and you've got cannabis on you, you're under no obligation to say, here's where I got it from. I just prefer to tell people to try to issue avoidance as, as, as the, one of the law partners I work with calls it. If you, if you've gotten it from a legal source, whether it be outside the state or inside the state, yeah. I like to keep the packaging and everything with it because then it just sense. it just avoids the issue. However, if I've just got a bag that I bought from, from my buddy right now, that's legal to have. However, the, if, if, if the, if they get into where it was purchased, how it was purchased, those types of things, no drug dealing is not legal. I mean let's just let's just be clear about that right however yeah, my ability to possess it right now there's a period of decriminalization that exists until January 1 of next year
2: Now in January 1 of next year do I have to buy it within the state system
1: Yes You will have to, by then your letter will no longer be good. No
2: ifs,
0: sins
1: or buts. No, not at this point. No, unless something changes, unless they have another special session in the fall. However, by the time they have the general session. No
2: way. I know those guys with the, (laughs) with the industry (laughs) and the grow. I mean, Hey, these guys want their, they want to be able to, to move their product. I mean, they've invested millions of dollars. So I don't, I don't disagree with the, the argument. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think. They just have an incentive to lobby to keep the law the way it is, right?
1: Well, of course. And I think the lawmakers, even if they didn't have that incentive to lobby in that direction, the lawmakers want to make this a Utah-only yeah, thing. Absolutely. If, you, if you know the history of Prop 2 to 3001 and so on and so on, you know the concern they have about the you know the illicit market and things like that. You know what I mean? Or the legacy market. Um, so you, you don't have to, I don't think we have to worry that the lawmakers well, right. won't do that. So yes, by January 1, 2020, 2021, you are going to have to have a card here in the state and you are going to have to purchase from an in-state, an in-state, uh, pharmacy. I always want to say Got dispensary.
2: Yeah. But to say pharmacy. We always say dispensary. Yeah, it's right. okay. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is, right? <laughs> call it, call it like you see it. Okay. So storing uh, this back to this storing thing, this question about, uh, you know, how do I store it? I, I like to recommend that people put it in a lockable or or some type of, you know, known container that's lockable. That's why we have them here. Yep. Um, and these little luggage locks are kind of convenient. Mm-hmm. They're not super strong. You could break into it. But at home, we and we talked about this before we started recording, the weeds out on the table. And DCSF comes over. That's a bad deal.
1: Yeah. For sure. And I think that's the idea is that you've got to make sure that it's stored in such a way that your children can't gain access to it. Because although you have protections as a medical cannabis patient, you may not have those same protections when it comes to DCFS. Now, when they determine custody and things like that, you know, or there's court decisions and things like that, they can't consider your cannabis use. Any differently as as a patient than they would the use of any other controlled substance or any other prescribed drug, right? However, when it comes to your children and things like that, they are still able to go after you for endangerment and things like that, right? Just because I'm a medical cannabis patient doesn't mean that I then can just have it around my children without necessarily, you know, any repercussions coming from that. So, yes... I would be very supportive of things like that. You know, put it in a safe, put it in a place that your children can't get to it. Make sure that it's in, you know, child tamper and resistant, all the things that are required. Well, I mean,
2: come on, let's you know? be clear. We are not going to have our Percocets, uh, the pills themselves laying out across the table. I'm surprised how many people keep them in their
0: medicine cabinet though. just open right? for anybody.
2: Yeah, well, that is, that is true, right? Yep. Like, I mean, and I think... T- okay, well, I think about where I've kept mine and I'm thinking, oh, maybe I ought to move those up higher. I I haven't been (laughs) to your house, (laughs) hustle. But at least they're in a childproof container. They're always in a childproof container. Yep. Cannabis just isn't, well, it isn't made like that. Yeah. Right. Your vape cart is not really made exactly. proof.
1: And so you're just going to have to take the necessary steps to make sure that you are keeping it away from those, you know, who are not, you know, entitled to have it. So, you know, when people ask me about, well, can I take it out in public with me? Well, of course you can. But understand, use in public is only permitted under emergency circumstances. So you maybe create an issue for your, for yourself that you don't need to. I mean, if you are one of those people that does believe they may have an emergency medical condition while they're outside the home and need to use the cannabis, then by all means take it with you. But that's where I want to you know always stress: make sure you have your letter on you. You know, be as legal to the T as you can be. So you don't give them any reason to try to, to, you know, law enforcement to jam you up or anyone else. Um, But for the most part, you know, although I have no problem when I go to places like Colorado or California or Washington and smell it as I walk down the street, I actually, you know, enjoy, you know, the smell of cannabis, you know what I mean? But here we, we don't, we're not supportive of that use in public. So unless you absolutely have to, I would just recommend, you know, again, issue avoidance, keep it at home. And keep it keep it in a safe place, you know, away from way, away from children. If you have it, you know, you may have to take different precautions if you're a single, you know, adult male than if you are a, a family man or a fa- you know or a family woman. You know, so
0: speaking of smells, I'm sure we've all walked around our neighborhoods and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. there's some smells right. coming out of that yeah. house there,
1: you know, <laughs> and you walk yep. a little further, oh, there's yep. somebody. <laughs>
2: yep. So have you seen um, speaking of smells and around your neighborhood, have you seen any cases come up about combustion versus
1: vaping? Um, is that I, a big issue yet? Well, I do know that there are some people, um, I've talked to some people that have had some some instances and then just heard of this. So many people are still smoking it. And, and honestly, the fact that we don't allow for combustion in Utah. It's silly. I think it's, <laughs> you nailed it, Chris. It's absolutely silly to me. <laughs> I understand the idea that vaping it is a cleaner way of ingesting it, but smoking it is the most recognized way of ingesting cannabis and to tell people that have been doing it that way for a long time, no, you can't do that. It creates a problem. And so for where, where I see it, you know, Tim is I see that people get arrested and they've got their cannabis in a medicinal dosage form, right? They've got their letter, they've got it, but guess what they also have in the car? They got a a pipe. pipe. No. Yeah. You know, or they've got, or they've got, you know, or they've yeah, got something just,
2: else. Right? That just kills it. Right. got That
1: pipe in there. That's got resin in it. Your <sighs> right. argument that I was using it legal is gone because even though the cannabis itself is in a medicinal dosage form, even though you've got your letter, you're completely legal. The way you're choosing to use it is illegal. And, and you're going to subject yourself to criminal charges. And I get people that, that say, and I said, you know, that's, so that's one of those things that I would like to see changed. However, I'm not very confident it is something that will be, that will be changed. Um, I think, you know, the fact that they got flour, um, in the first place, I think is still pretty impressive. I mean, they had to agree to blister packs and dry out flour vape and all that stuff, but I just think combustion, the smell of a burning joint, I still just think rubs, people the wrong way. And it's still one of those things that I still think denotes kind of the, 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 the stoner, you know, type of, type of It does.
2: And I get it on the medical association side. I mean, I get the argument. We talk about it here in clinic, every patient that smokes, I say, you know what, look, you, the combustion is not medicinal, right? There's no medicinal use for the, the combustion just doesn't, just doesn't have the additional effect. And so from a medical standpoint, if you're going to keep it medical, there's a very good argument to just keep it at 400 degrees instead of at a thousand degrees because chronic bronchitis is a real thing. And as we have younger cannabis users who are using more frequently over time, there's a good argument in my opinion that you should not be combusting it at least frequently if you are going to do it at all. So I can see both sides of this particular issue. I see the personal choice side. Of course. We're going to let people smoke tobacco, then you know why are we not going to do this? But but on the other hand, on the other hand, tobacco is not a a medical product, and if we were going to dictate how people use tobacco, we would probably do the same thing from the medical side. So there's a little bit of both. I agree with the the decreased temperature. I also think there's a cannabinoid and an entourage effect thing. Uh, going on with the 320 to 450 degrees, that makes it a little complicated. But again, the personal choice. So I guess I'm going to come out as I believe that the combustion thing is good. Let's keep it off. Let's keep combustion illegal for a little while, while we legitimize the medical side of cannabis. I'm always pushing, hey, let's let's legitimize it for my peers. The medical, uh, the medical providers, so that we can educate the patients that this is a real medication. Then we can move to personal choice when we go to adult use, which is coming. Yep. Yep. It'll come in Utah. I think you're right. The alcohol is a good example mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of how it could be.
0: Yep. Hey, we thought the private club for members was going to be forever here. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. we, we, we didn't. <laughs> you had you to know, pay, and, and, and it's changed. We pay 15 know, bucks every time we yeah, want to
1: get so, in I mean, somewhere. Yeah.
2: So we've progressed here
0: in
1: for
2: sure. For sure. We've progressed. Yeah. Okay, so what other legal questions did we get, Chris? Uh, well,
0: legality-wise, well, this is sort of a legal question. I had a uh, um, a listener message uh, message Utah in the weeds, and they were wondering because they have to drive from one county to another county, and they might, you know, sounds like it's a couple hours away, Uh and they don't have a car, they're not going to be able to come to pharmacies very often. How much cannabis can they have on them? How much cannabis? Well, right now I I think there's limited supply, but in general, once all the pharmacies get going, can somebody drive to say, you know, an hour or two to their nearest pharmacy and buy a boatload of it? Like how much could they buy?
1: Yes. I mean, right now, you know, I know that, you know, I know for instance, dragonfly is limiting people to an eighth of their type one flower per day. And you can come back as many days as you want. But right now under the law, um, you can possess up to 113 grams of, of unprocessed flour or up to 20 grams of total THC. So when you're talking about your vape carts and your other stuff, which if you know anything about cannabis, that's actually quite a bit of yeah.
2: Oh 20 of, grams uh, of concentrates of is a lot a of lot. yeah, that's if you a had lot 21
1: gram vape carts, that's gonna last you a long right. time, right? When you're so,
2: when you're in that, I mean, I think we talk to patients who at that point you're really into concentrates, rosin, wax. you're into like do. these type of thing because oh, my hell, twenty vape cards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's now yeah. we're going back to the combustion and then inhalation. Right? Yeah, like uh, this uh, is dangerous. Uh, yeah. Should
1: you be having twenty grams? <laughs> right, and that's within a thirty day a thirty day period, or really a twenty eight every twenty eight days you can get that amount. Now, interestingly, I have recently been you know have come to understand that maybe they're only allowing uh 56.5 or half of the total amount that's allowed every 2 weeks so they're putting but i but i don't see that anywhere in the law but i've heard that's going on with the dispensaries and i've heard that's creating some frustrations however right now there is no none of the three pharmacies that are open could i walk into at present as a patient and get my 113 grams you know this 20, is interesting to grams. hear
2: because on the one hand, we've there is some problems with the MJ freeway system and yep. tracking. And so we have patients that have been allowed to get more than their recommendation, right? Which which is kind of a problem on our side from the medical side. Like we make a recommendation, we put the fence up and we don't want them to get more than than we and kind then of to. To say. Yeah. And they've been able to get more using their letter or something else. And so that needs to be tightened up. But on the other hand, I don't. I guess I don't disagree with the one eighth thing. I mean, I just don't like patients to not have access. Of course. But you're right. I mean, four ounces of flour. That's a lot of flour
1: in 28 days. I mean, that's yeah, a quarter, uh, a quarter an ounce pound of eight. every 28 days. Yeah, I mean, an an and one. I know there are some medical patients you know, that I've talked to personally that have told me the amount that they consume to control their symptoms. And it's, it's incredible to me, even as someone that's been familiar with cannabis since I was 18 right. years old, it still makes me blush a little bit, you know? So I think that that's, you know, I think they're still trying to find, I mean, obviously like many things with the law, I think, you know, it needs, it may need some, some tweaks, but I think it's good to say, you know, cause there, if there are patients that need that amount, knowing they can get up to that amount, I think is good. But you raised a good point, Tim, that if there are, are certain recommendations being made, you know, either by the QMP or the PMP in consultation with the QMP on dosage parameters, you know, and, and really here's how much you should be using, right? right? I think you need to be sticking to those. If your doctor has been willing to go on record and, and say that, then yeah, I think you should probably, that should be what you should be sticking with. And if not, you and your doctor should be discussing it. But if your doctor doesn't put any, you know, the QMP doesn't put any restrictions on it and the, Pharmacy medical provider isn't putting restrictions on it. The law allows for 113 grams of flour or 20 grams of, you know, of, of total THC. So that's, that's, those are the limits. But like I said, there's none of these pharmacies you're walking in at present that you're going to be able to walk out with more than. I'd be surprised if you could get an ounce at any one of these places, yeah, let alone a half can. ounce. Probably a quarter might be the most you might be able to walk out with in terms of dry flour,
2: and that's just because of availability. Of though. course, that's that's right. nothing it's for just, no other reason. I mean, reason. everybody's yeah. out of flour right now. We just need oh, more I know these pharmacies that
1: love to be pushing ounces out the door, but guess what? They, right. they they have to be able to stay in business, so they've got a they've got a ration, and I think that underscores to me one of the most fundamental. Problems with Utah's medical cannabis law is that they were given the legislature was given the numbers of how many patients were expected, and they did some simple math and said, "Oh, well, if we give these many square feet or these many acres and yada yada yada, it'll all work." And then the Department of Ag was going to initially issue ten licenses, and then they issued only eight, and not all eight of those people are putting product on shelves. You only have three of the pharmacies open. I'm not sure how many people are processing and not.
2: Oh, there's so a very. I mean, there's less than five processing. Yep. There is, I think, three growing. And most of them are growing on temporary. In oh, they're temporary all growing intense. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's only there's only really one grower that's growing any any true amount of yep. cannabis.
1: Yep. Because you look at you look at you know Standard Wellness, and I know they just produced some incredibly potent some Dosi dough to Dragonfly, and it sold out immediately. It was gone. Right. In a couple of hours, right? And so you're you, that to me, and if I if I could tell, if I could talk to the Utah legislature, I would, I would encourage them to go and examine what the state of Oklahoma has done with their medical cannabis laws. I know we probably wouldn't ever make it that freewheeling and that much of a, you know, the market will determine who who wins and who doesn't, you know, who succeeds right. and fails. But you need to understand that access is a consistent issue. And the people that have been on the other side of the cannabis argument here in Utah. You know, the people that that have not been supportive of of the program we have. They have been banging that drum for a long time now. Shortages, you know, in some instances, you know, you know, they talked about product quality and these different things. And so to me, I would love to see something more similar to Oklahoma, more licenses, more opportunity for people. Let the market figure it out. If your products, if your product is what patients want, then that should be what sells. I think this, this very limited approach we've taken, although I'm not at all surprised because I knew that's how Utah would do this if we ever did. We'd always do sure. it on a very, I mean, all you got to do is go to look at our liquor stores, right? Same type of idea. But I really just wish they would let competition figure it out because I think there are a lot of people in this state that could be growing some really good cannabis and they either can't, they don't have the resources to get into the industry or they just weren't lucky enough to get a license when the, when the, when the first round happened, you know, and I just, to me, we should be taking advantage of this, you know, as opposed to, you know, treating it under, under lock and key, like we do other things. But because it's Utah, I'm not the least bit surprised.
2: No, no. No, and I think from a dosing standpoint, you've got laws like in Florida where you have an unlimited amount, right? You can put infinity milligrams, and there's a real proponent there, and I can't think of his name, but I think that's kind of dangerous mm-hmm. from a use standpoint. And on the other hand, you have a state like Utah, which is really capitalistic, right? Really free market, let the government stay away, and yet we've really we've come in and we're Almost managing it like a cartel, mm-hmm. although we don't have mm-hmm. the central fill dispensary again. that was really cartel-ish.
1: yep. and and I think I think that people need to understand that the pressure that was created by the prop two lawsuit, you know that's now been remanded back to state court, you know, brought by truce and the epilepsy Association of Utah, that was one of their major points, and I truly believe that it was a, a major catalyst behind getting rid of the central fill. And so to me, That's what people need to do. You know, I get people calling me all the time. They're like, well, we should sue this and we should do that. And I, I just tell them it's not. that's not the way we do this. Right. So the way that the activism needs to come alive and the way that it has been alive in this state is challenging what you don't like about the law and finding those legislators that may be friendly to it. But understanding that in a lot of ways, they have their own ideas about how this should go, but you've got to keep doing those things. And so supporting groups like True, supporting Epilepsy Association of Utah, supporting, you know, Utah Patients Coalition, you know, those types of things, getting money behind them, you know, hey, giving money towards the Prop 2 lawsuit that has kind of stalled out in state court a little bit, right? Funding those types of things, kind of the industry too. Like I was saying, the industry getting behind some of these things, because I know the industry knows they are being constrained by government. And yet, when you go on social media and you read all of these things, it's as if the industry itself is being these nasty, terrible, greedy, horrible people, right? I know mm-hmm. that some of that stuff does exist, but they are being constrained by the same laws that people don't like, right? So, it, but but I honestly think if they got behind it and it wasn't just patients and advocates, but it was the industry that wanted to push the the you know push things forward, the law forward here in Utah, I think I think it would make it would make a difference, and I'm hopeful that they will use the position they have to do some of those things. Cause I think in the end, what will benefit patients? You know, if you can get what benefits patients to be also what benefits industry, that's exactly what you want. But right now, some of that is diverged, you know, a little bit. And I get a lot of frustrations, you know, from people, you know, people ask me about home grow and yeah, I tell them, I say, the time. I say, guess what? I think I am absolutely a proponent of home grow. I think you should be allowed to grow your own medicine in your backyard. If you want to prop two did have some allowance for that. Um, of course it was one of the first things they removed with HB 3001. Um, but I get people say, well, I want to sue the state over, over home grow. Well, I would love to too, but I'm not sure under what theory, you know, we can, we can do that. Uh, you know, the medical necessity f- defense that, that Dr. Randall put up back in the seventies. So he had glaucoma and I'm, if you know the story of him, he's a, it's a really cool story. So he, he was caught criminally prosecuted he beat the prosecution through a medical necessity defense and then he turned around and sued the US government for cannabis and up to a couple of years ago he and only three other people were still getting yeah. cannabis from the federal government from cannabis the cannabis cigarettes from the the farm in the big yeah. yeah, from the yes. farm in Mississippi now i've heard they i've heard they're horrible quality but you know he was getting it but that's not really recognized anymore and it's sad because I really think, especially right now with the way the shortages are going on, things may change when we have all 14 pharmacies up and running and everybody's growing and whatever, it may change, right? You may have enough supply, but I just think to me, in my mind, it is criminal that we won't allow patients to, to, to attempt to grow their own, you know, their own medicine still, you know, in consultation with their doctor and all of those things, right? I'm not sure. I mean, the use is still, yeah, the
2: use would still be regulated. Of course. Right. Of course. You would just be able to have access to the product. Yep. Instead of having to drive to a drive to a different state, break federal law.
1: Right. Oh yeah. To to come
2: back. And that's really what's expected. Yeah. They they want want, to they want
1: to and I hear Mario Enriquez all the time talk about patients, not criminals. You know, I've heard other people use that phrase. And by what the way our law is, in some ways you're forcing some of these people either because they can't afford it Mm -hmm. or because there's there's not enough of it. You know, to go to other states or go back to the legacy market to to get their cannabis. So you're forcing them to be to be criminals in a way. And I and I really hope that that will change, you know, over time. But we're also in the real fledgling stages of our program.
2: Yeah, and we bring this up all the time on the podcast, Chris and I, that with all of our guests, really, that hey, right, we're three years. We waited. How we waited? How long for medical cannabis? And we got to wait another few months for them to grow a little bit. Like, okay, we we are maybe crying for our chocolate milk like a four year old in a little way. But but I agree we're to the point now as a society, as a culture in Utah, that we we could have done better. We could have done a little bit better, prepared a little bit better. Um yep. Yep. I mean it's even possible that maybe the maybe what we should have done is not let the dispensaries open or the pharmacies open until there were three growers that were growing product and there had enough, we had enough uh plan. So the, the expectations We set expectations pretty high. And we've kind of undershot the expectation.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that, you know, you look at that arbitrary date of March 1st that the legislature yeah. set. And it was their, It was their, one of their calling cards when it came to HB 3001, right, of you'll get cannabis several months sooner under this plan than you would have under Prop 2. And they knew they had to hold to that, at least in my own opinion, that they had to hold to that to save face over kind of what they did to Prop 2. It was kind of their, they thought it was their saving grace, right? So you had them roll out the patient portal, you know, your ability, the EVS system. Yeah, yeah. The day before the very first dispensary opened.
2: Yeah, I mean, the oh, planning man. on
1: that was just terrible. And I just think in other States, they did that. In other I know, States, Rich O'Born waited, is right? crying
2: right now. He's For like, sure. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I was know. part of
1: this, but they know in other States though, that, that they did do that. They, they got the patient population built up. They made sure that they had the infrastructure in place on the industry side. And then when they opened the doors to the dispensaries, you know, they don't necessarily have these problems, but it's my understanding that in every state that has gone medical or gone legal, you've had similar kinds of problems. Now, I think yes. we've had some unique things here in Utah. And to me, I think the biggest tragedy of the whole thing is that our legislature thinks they know better than the voting public. And I will just leave it on that. <laughs> That's my biggest problem with the whole thing, right? <laughs> All right. Let's come back to this question
2: about criminality. So, and And I remember the question I was going to ask you. Is can a patient buy product from another patient? I have heard that there is no there, there's no like instructions on this. There's no statute.
1: Yeah, as far as I know, there's there's not. I mean, I know in certain states and I've been asked this by somebody, I was actually asked this by someone the other day. I, I don't I'm not sure how they would look at it, but the only people that are licensed to sell cannabis in Utah are the pharmacies, right? So it might be one of those things where if I got it from a friend and I possess it during this decriminalization period, Nothing can happen, right? But it's not like, say, in California where you kind of have some of these compassion programs where you can. You know, you have you have caregiver programs where people can grow it and just give it away. I mean, I've heard of stories up in Oregon that come harvest time, people just give cannabis wow. away to, to, those people. to medical patients. Right. <laughs> it happens in California. Actually, I think they just passed a law not long ago that, that, that bolstered that. But yes, there's nothing in the law, but I would be reticent to to sell it, you know, between, between patients. Cause even though you're both legal, the act of doing that is not necessarily legal. Cause the only people that are authorized to sell cannabis in Utah are the pharmacies, the licensed pharmacies.
2: And wouldn't you be breaking federal law? Of course.
1: Any a, by possessing it, selling it, doing anything with cannabis, right? You're, you're, you're already going to be yeah, illegal. You're already breaking law. law. Yeah. So we're all, we're all, you know, we're all criminals, I guess. You, you know got what it. I mean? Yeah. You got it. Well, I'm glad that, like that part of
2: it, I want to, I mean, I want to clear up there. There's some, we see patients once in a while who, you know, they'll mention one ounce a month or they'll mention two ounces a month, but they're sitting there with their, you know, with somebody else. And, you know, you just, you got to be
1: careful. Of course. Of course. And I think that's one of the legislature's biggest, biggest concerns. Every committee hearing that I've been in, I have heard the word diversion. You know, they are very concerned about medical cannabis being diverted to non-patients and being diverted, you know, for purposes of making, you know, making a profit. I think that's one of the biggest arguments against HomeGrow, although – I do not know very many medical cannabis patients, even if they could grow six plants that would grow enough and have enough, you know, growing knowledge yeah. to produce enough to be able to give or sell to other people. So to me, it's a little bit of an irrational fear, but then again, so many things surrounding cannabis are, are irrational to me. And they've been that way since, you know, the early 1900s, you know, and sadly, and so, well, and the price get point. so much of that.
0: The price point. Well, the price point now. What, 58 I mean, bucks for an eighth? I mean, that how are you going to resell that? What, for 60 bucks? Make two bucks? I mean, come on. <laughs> right.
2: There is no money <laughs> right. in reselling dispensary, yeah, uh, dispensary no. flour. Any
0: other questions, Tim? Or should we wrap this episode up? Oh, I think up? we I mean, wrap it up. This has been you know, really, this has been really uh, good. Exciting.
1: Uh, yeah, no, I'm. I'm just so happy you guys had me on. I, you know, I've listened to all the other episodes. I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed getting to hear the patient stories, but also some of the activists that you guys have had on. Um, I really enjoyed. Didn't you guys do one on location? At, yeah, 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 at, that the
2: that. yeah really at the grow. Yeah, the temporary grow was that Sean? Sean Hammond. Sean Hammond. Yeah, yeah, and that was yeah. a good episode. Yeah,
1: and I'm really excited to see what what they're doing in terms of trying to push on the different cultivars and strains and stuff. And yeah, so well,
2: I just was down there you know? the other the other day, and Blake, uh, their chief science officer has, you know, they're going to start isolating different cannabinoids and uh, that's going to be really exciting. It'll be exciting for somebody like me who, who gets into compounding Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. potentially down the road, you know, this could be years, but compounding different strains or different percentages of cannabinoids for different conditions and really dial in on the medicine.
1: Yep. For sure. Well, and I've just been, you know, you know, I've been impressed by, you know, the Redbeard farmer and, and what, you know, what dragonfly has been doing and I'm just excited to see, to see the other people get in, but I also know that we need more of it, you know, you know, in, in the long term, you know, more, more opportunity for people. But yeah, I just, I just think, you know, I would, I would counsel people to just continue, you know, banging the drum, continue reaching out to your lawmakers, continuing to be advocates for this and, and understand that it may not be what you want. And for some people, that means that they want to see it fail. And I don't, and it's, and I don't have any qualms with them. Right. But for other people, they are interested in working with what we have. And so for me, you know, it's, it's finding a way right now for my business to be able to, to fit in within, within the industry and within the people that are, that are a part of this, this program here in Utah, you know, and then as the law changes, you know, you know, dictate off of that. But for me, it's, it's an interesting position as an attorney, as opposed to necessarily an advocate or, you know, a healthcare provider or, or, or a dispensary owner or a grow owner, but. Yeah. I just, I just really like what you guys are doing because to me, one of the biggest things is the lack of education over this. You know, I love to sit and just try to talk with people about cannabis and cannabis history. And, you know, this article that I just wrote, you know, for Salt Lake city that should hopefully be premiering before the weekend. Um, you know, you know, I had someone in my office read it to see what they thought of it and they said, well, I never knew that California was one of the first States to take action against cannabis. I said, surprising, huh? Cause they were like, I would have thought it maybe would have been, you know, somewhere else, you know? And I was like, Nope, you know, interestingly, and then, you know, obviously Utah in 1915 and you know, so on and so forth. So I just feel fortunate because it's something that I've been passionate about personally since, since my freshman year in college. I think I told this story on the, I am Salt Lake podcast. The first paper I wrote in college was about legalizing cannabis and using the tax revenue to spend down the national debt. Um, and so I have followed it all throughout Colorado, have many friends, you know, have several friends that are part of the cannabis industry in Colorado. And so I've always followed it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful that, that we do have a program here, although the way we got it, I'm still not, still doesn't exactly sit well, in you know, in my stomach, but, sure. you know. How can people
0: get a hold of you, J.D.? Yeah,
1: so, yeah, so you can, you can, you can reach me, um, you know, at, uh, right now, obviously with COVID going on, we are still, you know, mostly working from home, our office. So you can call our main line, 801-323-5000 at Christensen and Jensen PC, or, you know, people can, can reach me, you know, I'm on, on Twitter, uh, UT Cannabis Law. Um, You can go through our, my website, utcannabislaw.com. That'll give you some contact information, although admittedly it needs some, some updating since all the laws have changed i haven't had a chance to get all my info updated um, on there but i will you know i'm on i'm on facebook but not professionally i'm on instagram but not professionally but people can get a call me that way and then my email address is one of the easiest ways um jd.lauretson l-a-u-r-i-t-z-e-n at
0: perfect
2: what about you tim well, as always, it's utahmarijuana.org. I mean, that's the best way to get a hold of me cuz that'll that'll give you all the information that uh that'll lead you to me, my office number 801-851-5554. And here, Utah in the weeds podcast, like you, Chris, how about you? Well, iamsaltlake.com is where you can listen to my other
0: podcast. I did want to mention uh, I didn't even remember. We have a new kind of logo I put up on iTunes. Oh yeah. And for it's sweet.
2: Do you like that, Tim? Yeah. I really like it because I think it's going to look better on the t-shirt Yeah, and we yeah. got to order some stickers for yeah. the hydro flasks. And, um, I've ordered a couple more of those canvas prints for the, for the clinic. So we can put them up in all the rooms. I was thinking we could get everybody. some stickers,
0: we could tell people, stop by here and pick up some stickers, oh, yeah. right? Like, in fact, this is a perfect think... place to come to pick stuff up for the podcast, man. Oh, okay. Done. Right. Well, I don't know if Done? that's- Done? Let's get some stickers. Yeah, They'll be man. here by next Friday. <laughs>
2: You're welcome to come (laughs) call first. You can schedule an appointment.
0: (laughs) There you go. Come get your card.
1: Come get your stickers. Yep. And then I was just going to say, I think it is on the 11th, the 11th um, Utah cannabis United is kind of putting on a can affair. Um, I'm not sure how it's all going to go. I know it's going to be held out at quintessence out in, in, in Sandy. So I'm going to be a part of it. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to be doing or not doing. I know I'll be out there. So, you know, people can, people can come to that. Obviously Utah can has been moved to 2021 officially. I think they're going to start up doing some of their virtual events again. Um, you know, the, the CBD, Utah CBD collective, um, on the hemp side of things, they have little shows every morning, little, you know, similar to this uh-huh. type of stuff. So there's good ways to stay, to stay involved. And then obviously, you know, there's, there's a slew of stuff on, on social media, you know, especially Facebook with all the different groups and stuff. So yeah, that's, that's how I, how I stay, how I stay connected. Um, and how people connect with, you know, with me. So I'm excited for that event. And then I actually think that next Saturday after that, um, beehives, beehive buds and, um, Shane England's group, the, uh, the great basin hemp and farm co-op is going to do kind of a teaching event down at Shane's farm. Um, so people oh, can find out wow. about that on online. He's a, he's a hemp farmer and a, and a, and a friend and client of mine and, You know, so, so those are, those types of things are going on. So even though things are not like they would be, you know, if, without COVID, there's still, there's still opportunities for people to do stuff. So I, you know, I recommend people, you know, if they want to get involved, get involved, but mostly you know, contact your state representatives, contact the legis- you know, the legislators contact your, you know, national representatives and, you know, keep banging the, the drum for cannabis legalization. Cause that's the only way to effectuate real changes through those types of people. You know, advocacy online is great. Advocacy on social media is great, but you know, real change comes through, comes through, you know, comes through those kinds of things. So awesome. we need those kind of people.
2: Awesome. Sure.
0: Well, thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you so much, JD, you. for coming. Yeah. I want to We have to bring you back through a few times. You know, there's so much we can learn from you.
1: Any time, any time. Anyways, on that note, thank you
0: for listening. Make sure to subscribe in whatever podcast app you're listening to this in. And uh, we'll see you next week.